Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, July 14th. We begin with a look at the WE scandal facing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We speak with a political commentator on what this means for the PM and the lack of current legislation to prevent a conflict of interest like this at the federal level. Next, we check in with the Calgary Chamber on the state of local businesses. Sandeep Lali, President and CEO of the Chamber, explains the current challenges facing Calgary stores and restaurants as we move through Phase 2 of reopening. The impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating to long-term care centres in Canada. We get details on how our nation stacks up to other countries from the Canadian Institute of Health Information. It's a new bus service with a focus on luxury amenities for passengers. We speak with the president of Snow Travels Incorporated on the routes now available to travellers across the province. And finally, it's a somber anniversary. The Pine Lake tornado disaster happened 20 years ago on July 14th. We look back at the devastation that took the lives of 12 people and injured more than 100 more. 642 now. Janet Brown is a pollster and political commentator, and she's joining us this morning to provide some context on the Prime Minister and the we scandal he's embroiled in right now. Good morning, Janet. Good morning. So the Conservatives, Janet, calling for a criminal investigation into this. Is, is that likely and is it necessary, do you think? You know, hard to say if it's likely. I mean, definitely, um, I think we're going to want to see, um, you know, federal justice committees look into this. Uh, this this issue is sort of far from dead. Whether it's going to turn into a criminal investigation, I think it's really too early to determine that. Well, I, I think personally, uh, from my standpoint, checks and balances, they seem to be uh, missing here when it comes to something like this. And we've heard, and maybe you can confirm, that uh, the prime minister could be fined five hundred dollars. Uh, for a decision of moving nine hundred million, is is that true? I don't know if that's true or not, and and I mean it's kind of silly, right? I mean, uh, you know, five hundred dollars. I mean, if there really was an ethical breach here, you know, the idea that you could sort of solve that with five hundred dollars is is rather silly. It won't really give much comfort to you know voters who are concerned about this, and it'll seem like a distraction to voters who aren't concerned about this. Janet, why is there no punishment or penalty in place for a government that would you know do something like this, and 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 not just this government, any government is. It's just no, there's nothing there to, to, you know, kind of slap them on the wrist. Well, it remains to be seen what sort of, uh, you know, how this is going to play out. And one thing that's going to be very different about this investigation compared to some of the other uh, ethical investigations, the, the two other uh, ethics investigations that the prime minister has faced is, you know, now in a minority parliament, things are different. Mm. Um, the committees that he's going to face will not be dominated by liberals like they were in the past. You know, you remember during the uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal, um, you know, that committee, uh, a lot of members of that committee wanted to bring her back a second time to testify, but the liberal-dominated committee sort of stopped that that in its tracks. And, and for a lot of people, we didn't get sort of full disclosure on all of those issues. Now these committees aren't dominated by the liberals. And so um, it may not be as easy this time for the liberals to shut it down. Um, this thing may go on a lot longer than some of these other scandals did. And they might get to sort of a you know, a, a fuller conclusion in terms of, of penalties um, and, and more important for the government, you know, revelations that could hurt them in the next election. It is a different game being a minority government. So I'm wondering if there's added pressure within the Liberal Party to, to really take a look at their leader, uh, Justin Trudeau, and, and uh, wonder if there should be maybe be a change at the top. Do you think those discussions are being made uh, behind the scenes in the LPC? 
probably always being made. But, you know, it's a really tricky time. I mean, like, look at how difficult it is for the Conservatives to hold a leadership race, mm-hmm. you know, during mm-hmm. the COVID pandemic. They've had to postpone their race. They're not getting nearly the media attention that a party w- would like right now. Um, and um, and once the Conservatives get a new leader in place, you know, the Liberals will be even more reluctant to replace their leaders. You know, I was hearing rumours that, you know, uh, that we could have an election as early as this fall. I never took those as very credible because it just seemed to sort of, you know, be, be incredulous that the government would want to have an election at this time with everything that's going on. But it is a minority parliament. And, you know, one of the things that the, the Liberals will be thinking about is the optimum time, you know, to hold an election. So I don't necessarily see that the, that this is going to force the Liberals' hands in terms of, you know, determining whether they should have a new leader or not, especially in a minority parliament. But it definitely may change the calculation for when the ideal time for the next election is going to be. To play the devil's advocate, you know, is this truly a big deal? Nobody made any money after all. (laughs) Um, well, nobody made any money, but you know, you, you know, favors were traded and and reputations are on the line. So, so it is an important, um, you know, it is an important scandal. But, you know, when it comes to things like this, um, you know, I think we are going to see the the, new, the the needle move on on polls, especially when it comes to sort of Trudeau's popularity. But the fact of the matter is, is there'll be a lot of Trudeau supporters out there, you know, who who who. We'll be able to sort of rationalize this and justify this. You know, if they weren't bothered by some of the other ethical scandals that have surrounded the prime minister, they're not going to be concerned about this one. There's going to be other voters who just who were always concerned about, you know, Trudeau and Trudeau's leadership, and they're going to be, um, you know, continue to be opposed to Trudeau over this. What's really critical is, are there a few people in the middle? Are those people who were fans of Trudeau, but now this has gone a step too far for them? We're already seeing in polling that maybe his approval numbers have slipped by 5%. Mm. That's bad news for the the prime minister. But, you know, when it comes to polling, when it comes to election results, it's not just about what people think about Trudeau. It's it's what do they feel about all the choices in front of them. And as damaging as this is for Trudeau, um, you know, it's it's happening at a time where there's not strong leadership from any of the other parties. So will many voters actually say this is a reason for me to change my vote? To change your vote, you've got to think that there's a better alternative out there. Janet, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. That is Janet Brown, pollster and political commentator. 812 on the morning news, more businesses open in this city and by all accounts, Calgarians are feeling better about being out and visiting local shops and businesses, showing their support. How are business owners in our city feeling? To find out, we're joined by Sandeep Lolly, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Good morning to you, Sandeep. Good morning, Andrew. Had some uh, announcements in the past week, uh, not not great news, absolutely. Two restaurant closures this past week, Chop at Chinook Centre and Mr. Chen's in the downtown core. Have you heard of any uh, other uh, businesses that haven't made it through the pandemic, Sandy? Yeah, so that's what kind of we were waiting for was the end of June there. And clearly, you know, it's a very difficult time. And what we've really now had with the numbers coming in with unemployment at 15.6%, one in five small businesses in Alberta considering bankruptcy and that the Canadian economy is going to, is expected to shrink at 6.8% this year. That's really what we kind of had thought was going to occur with respect to, you know, consumer confidence and not having enough free cash and not having a stable enough balance sheet to carry yourself through. And so now we're starting to see those 
closures come to shape. And so I think as we get through the summer here and, you know, people are, as you say, you know, trying to consume as, as best they can with their comfort levels, we'll see how many can make it through this next quarter as well. But I think overall it is still one of those areas where we're going to continue to see closures because the demand is there, but it's getting serviced a different way with, you know, lighter touch potentially. And then if you need high touch, that costs more, but the customer is not ready to pay for that mm-hmm. either. So, and yeah, for, and so just all the one. social distancing too within any business. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the restaurants, uh, kudos to them, like Concord Group is expanding out, you know, National is going to open another location. They're out in Banff as well. You know, they're trying to make it work to say that, you know, we're here, we're resilient, and, and we we want to be here for the long term. But it is that space, space issue that's uh, causing issues. But I mean, now we've heard yesterday, you know, in the update around the fact that the numbers are going up. So we have to balance that. Hearing yesterday the announcement from the Prime Minister that the federal wage subsidy plan for those companies hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic extended now until December. How important is that to local businesses? That's very important. We've heard that time and time again. And I hope that, you know, with this announcement that the, the eligibility remains the same, you know, and also scales with as these companies are starting to come into some revenue targets that they don't get opted out of being eligible because the fixed cost reduction on the wage subsidy is actually what's helping them move through. So we got to make sure it's encouraging for them to grow their business, but, you know, at least have that fixed cost relief that they're used to through this year to plan out. And I hope that the details don't push some of these companies out. So there's some criticism that, you know, that we need to cut these subsidies pretty quickly. We're going into such great debt. So you would not be in support of that, saying that, you know, businesses still need this money to help them survive. What they also need, though, is that long-term plan, right? So we need some vision and some bold action on this recovery. So we've stabilized businesses and households, and this wage subsidy is part of that stabilization. This is going to take a longer term, right? So it's like 18 months, two years. So what businesses are looking for is what's that sustainable, inclusive path forward? And so traditional stimulus spending isn't the only way to go here and it's quite frankly not going to work so things like you know child care child care creates more jobs per million than some of our traditional stimulus type things so that's the kind of thing that businesses are looking for is what is that long-term driver for economic growth and so having the wage subsidy is one element but what are those other bold actions to have more inclusive growth so that we can get those comfort levels and and money flowing through the economy. Sandeep, how has the chamber had to change the approach from, you know, a couple of months ago when you were trying to help these businesses get up and running to now uh, they are running? What, what, what sorts of changes and challenges have you seen, um, you know, in the past two or three months? So, yeah, right now it is all about trying to make sure that we stay open and that these businesses remain viable. So consumer confidence is one element. Our powering up toolkit. Um, speaks to, you know, how do you get, you know, PPE, for example, how do you get your HR planning, get your fixed costs, you know, all of that sort of stuff restructures and set 
And now it's about developing your business development around customers and getting more customer collisions so you can grow your business through whether it's your professional service company looking to, you know, pro- make proposals or RFPs. We're trying to work on making those connections. And also, you know, as we, as we talked last week, we're, we launched our Resilient Business Awards, and that is to, to recognize businesses that have made those structural changes and have really looked at the long term to say, how are we going to stay viable, and then sharing that out into the community. Thanks for joining us once again, Sandeep. Always appreciate your perspective. Oh, thank you very much. All the details and all the help and uh, resources at calgarychamber.com. Sandeep Lally, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. And we've heard uh, 709 on the morning news that some schools have opened across the nation. In BC, I was talking to my in-laws and they were doing kind of that rotated thing where one day... Yeah, how they'd did have, they do it? One, yeah. one day on, one day off? One day, one day on for this uh, and one day on for the next one. So it was a very interesting hmm. uh, breakdown. Um, and uh, in uh, Quebec, uh, not Montreal, but certain sections. So we're going to dig into that right now as restaurants and stores and public places slowly begin to reopen. Questions remain about what measures would and should be in place when students and teachers return to school in the fall en masse. With details, we're joined by Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. Good morning to you, Colin. Good morning. Colin, if you can talk about some of the things that make schools unique compared to the businesses uh, that have already opened in our nation. I'm sorry, you cut out slightly, so I only heard half the question. Okay, well, maybe that's for the best. Um, <laughs> you know, we've had a lot of reopenings when it comes to businesses in our nation. Uh, what makes a school atmosphere unique when it comes to reopening? And what sorts of things have to be taken under consi- uh, consideration? So schools are different for a couple of reasons. By definition, you have a lot of crowding. Schools are very busy places. Not all businesses have large numbers of people. Uh, Businesses, in many cases, can do things well online. I think we've all figured out now that learning online for kids does not work well. So there's more imperative, I think, if we're going to have schooling at all, uh, to have it in person. The other big problem is, or challenge, is kids, for most respiratory viruses are an incubus of plague. They are exactly what you don't want to have involved. For COVID, there's emerging evidence that the opposite may be true. We don't understand why yet, and it makes us obviously very cautious. Uh, It's probably better to use the conventional wisdom to say kids and respiratory viruses really, really are a dangerous mix. And so that's something to consider, too. And certainly, you know, as as the kids are the incubus of of plague, as you call them, I love it, it's a great term, but, you know, that also then puts the educators, the teachers, and all of the people within the school building at risk, too. Absolutely. I, we've been paying, I've been paying very close attention to emerging data from other countries around how infective are kids, because we would expect to see very high infection rates there. Asymptomatic, yes. Mild illness, yes. But being able to pass it on to school administrators and teachers could mean making them extremely sick. We haven't seen a lot of that happen. And, and so, in a sense, that makes me optimistic. But I would be a lot happier if we had a biological mechanism to explain that because it is a bit of a puzzle. Colin, I, I think that uh, within uh, what you do for a living, you perhaps have been watching uh, those limited openings across the nation of schools, such as in BC with rotating openings and, and uh, different pockets out east. What have you seen uh, that is working and what, what do you like? 
I think in the, the theory around cohorting, which is to say you put kids in a group and they play with that group and they stay with that group, that is smart. Uh, our so, you know, social network analysis tells us if you're going to have contacts with others, repeated contacts with the same people is so much less risky than wide open contact with everyone, even if the amount of contact is the same. So that, I think, is really important. I think for, for kids beyond a certain age, and that age is a bit of a mystery to me, mask wearing is a good idea. I Below a certain age, and again, where we can reasonably do that, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. and I don't think we've found the answer, but that's also something I'm certainly, certainly keeping an eye on. I'm not convinced that part-time school is helpful because you have to think, well, the kids are doing something elsewhere when they're not in school, and that elsewhere may not be particularly safe. So it's it's not clear to me that we have a big advantage of doing of doing part time. But the reasoning there is to be cautious. Is is the, the reasoning is baby steps. So I understand that reasoning, but I, I wish we had more examples of school systems that went in whole hog. Uh, but did it in a very careful way. What kind of cleaning protocols would we have to put in place, Colin? Because they're germy. They touch everything, kids. I mean, you know, how do you, how in the world do you keep a school clean? That's a tough one. <laughs> and, you know, hand sanitizer is an amazing invention for keeping hands cleaner. Uh, but hand sanitizer with kids has to be supervised because it is highly alcoholic and kids will experiment. So that's something that uh, that we do have to be quite concerned about. But hand sanitizer to me is really, you can't clean every surface. You don't need to if you're keeping hands clean. In other words, the last chain of transmission is when that hand touches the face. If you focus your efforts there, then you will you will be successful. But it, it does require it does require eyes and it does require attention. Well, the hand sanity takes some time, and I'm assuming they'd have temperature checks. You look at things like lunch, recess, and if there's going to be organized sports, regardless if if they go back in some fashion and not have schooling online. It's going to look a lot different for these kids, and the day is going to be broken down in, into a, a very different format, isn't it? No question. I think sports would be the would be would be difficult because it would it would run counter to sporting. And certainly lunch, you know, if you eat that in your, lunch, in your classroom with your class, that's cohorting. Staggered recess times so that the kids aren't all out in the playground at the same time. So there are ways that you can lever what you have in terms of the discipline and the routine of the school day in order to, in order to sort of desynchronize uh, things like lunch and recess and so on and so forth. Sports and other kinds of extracurriculars that would mix students from all sorts of different classes and grades, that's the one I would be most conservative about. Colin, would we reorganize our classrooms and the entire school setup to to make sure that we can put these kids back in school in September safely? Well, ideally, we would have more space, more space between desks, smaller classes, larger rooms, better ventilation. Those are all things that would make sense, that would make us safer. But not all schools and not all school boards have that infrastructure, have that capacity. So I think it's almost on a, almost on a room-by-room, case-by-case basis. What can be done to make a classroom really safe? And as far as what we can be doing... Oh, yeah, are you there, Colin? Okay, good. You broke up a bit there. As far as what we can be doing at home to prepare our students, and I guess it would probably be a case of uh, continuing and keeping our foot on the gas when it comes to, uh, you know, the hand washing and the mask wearing if they're a certain age, because that will be, uh, you know, mandatory if school does open September 1. 
Absolutely. So getting kids used to that, and I'm hoping that's already happening, getting them used to wearing masks. Uh, as I say, it's not clear to me what the lowest range that we can really expect kids to adhere to that would be. I think we're going to have to find out. Uh, but part of that is certainly going to be the, the messaging that happens at home. Absolutely. No question. Do you think kids will be going back to school in September? And do you think that it can be done safely? I think it can. I think it's not, not necessarily so. We have to look at how much community spread is happening in a particular jurisdiction. When community spread is low, so is the, relatively speaking, the risk of going back to school. I would want to see screening happening in every school all the time. By screening, I mean, sure, we can take temperature, but even more significantly, I think, is blood oxygen, that uh, the pulse oximeter, the device you stick your finger in and three seconds later, it tells you your lung function. That would be really effective for asymptomatic cases, which we know kids tend to be. Would it catch everyone? No, but you don't need to catch everyone. If you catch a case or two here or there, then you know that you need to move in and do more testing. So I would like to see that every day in every school. Colin, thank you very much for your time this morning. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. That is Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. 609 now and Canadian Institute for Health Information or CIHI is dedicated to collecting and providing health data on health systems. So they reviewed how different countries managed COVID-19 in long-term care settings. How did Canada fare in comparison to other countries around the world? We're joined this morning by Tracy Johnson, CIHI's Director of Health System Analysis and Emerging Issues. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning, Sue. Thanks so much for joining us. This is, you know, top of mind still. It's super key as we think, you know, potentially ahead to a second wave of COVID and how it might affect, uh, you know, our seniors and those in these care homes. So how did we fare in Canada? Because I I would say from the inside, it doesn't look like we did a great job. Well, we can see from the data that we collected as of about March 25th that Canada fared, especially in long-term care, fared particularly badly. So 81% of all the deaths that we had in Canada due to COVID-19 were in long-term care. And that in itself compares, when we looked at other OECD countries, it compares with about 38% in OECD in other countries. Now, those deaths varied considerably in those other countries, too. Like, we had about 5,000 and change. Australia had about 28. And as you know, France, it was 10,000 or more. And the U.S. is still climbing today. Tracy, how many different countries were looked at within this comparison? Uh, There were 16 countries overall. Can you tell us who did, of those that fared the best in terms of the long-term care settings, what did they do differently than from what we did, say, here in Canada? So some of the most interesting things that we did find were all countries put into place stay-at-home orders. A lot of them had economic stimulus, and a lot of them had acute care funding, specifically with a focus on acute care. But those that did better had a very specific focus at the same time on long-term care. So they put in things like long-term care isolation wards. They made sure that there was broad long-term care testing, that infection control training and audits were well in place at the same time. And those countries seemed to fare better. So those are countries like Australia. 
So we, we look at the, you know, the different countries. You mentioned 16 in total and putting in Canada in the mix, but even different uh, within our nation, depending on where you were. So local measures, for example, uh, could make a difference. You can uh, look at the example of Kingston, Ontario, um, as, as a leading example. Yes, in Kingston, what they did was as soon as the restaurants closed, the public health officer realized that he had inspectors that he could use in another way. He sent them out to nursing homes and made sure that they understood what the infection control practices were and they understood they had an opportunity. Then they went back later on with nurses and they had an opportunity for staff to ask questions and to make sure things were in place. And as a result, at that particular time when we did this um, study, they did not have any deaths in long-term care or any cases. Tracy, you know, we've made much here of the the workers, those frontline workers in these care homes who were not being paid, you know, a a wage that was enough that would keep them at one home. So they were moving back and forth. Is Mm -hmm. that, did you dig deep into that aspect of things? Did we see that in other countries as well? Or is that part of the problem here in Canada? Well, when we look at some of the baseline sector um, kind of characteristics that we can see. What we see is that we do have less nurses and personal support workers as a proportion compared to other countries. So that may be one of the structural effects that had something to do with what happened here in Canada. And, and a great example within our nation, uh, and I, I'm just reading this right now in the article on theconversation.com, uh, is what BC did uh, with their healthcare employees. If you can break that down for us. Uh, so what BC ended up specifically doing with their employees was they had um, mobile testing units in all long-term care, and as well, they said to their staff, you can only work, they had legislation quite early on that said you can only work in one facility. And in Ontario, we did the same thing, but we did not do it up front. BC did it faster than we did. Is there a system in place that can talk to the various homes across a province or across a country to to see what's happening and and sort of maybe a you know an early warning system as it were maybe so these are some of the things that this study has highlighted is that we don't have nearly enough information across canada on long-term care homes their structure the number of personal support workers they have the ppe that they have now the federal government is working with public health as well as cihi and a number of other organizations to ensure that they have better information on those kinds of things not only in long-term care but across all sectors as we go into this second wave you reference uh, you know giving the comparison between bc and ontario with the timing as mm-hmm. far as making those workers stay in, in one facility. I'm wondering how important from a CIHI perspective it is, uh, the timing of, of, of getting this rectified sooner rather than later. Uh, because, again, you mentioned the second wave. Should we be uh, really fast-tracking this or, or really, uh, you know, dig deep and, and, and get a plan of action uh, in place first? Well, since the, as you know, since the first wave um, has progressed through across the provinces in Canada, We've been more increasingly, governments have been more increasingly diligent about what they did in long-term care. What the second wave will tell us is whether we've done a good enough job and are we still able to protect mm-hmm. seniors. So you're involved in system analysis as, as uh, you know, in that role. What would you like to see happen? What would be sort of, if you could ma- wave your magic wand, what would you put in place, at least for Canada? 
better information systems overall. That's what's going to help us manage and understand where the hotspots are in Canada, whether it's long-term care or other areas, and manage the crisis. And I guess the other thing, when you mention uh, the information aspect, with 16 different countries uh, uh, surveyed here, we could probably pick and choose and learn from those countries that did it right. That information sharing globally as well would be uh, important, I would think, Tracy. Yes, it is. And the OECD, OECD has convened tables recently to look at what happened in other countries and to look at the information they did or didn't have. And our journey with long-term care is not dissimilar. While other countries may have responded faster and done a better job of isolating some of their seniors, they didn't necessarily have any more information or they had pockets of information just like we did in Canada. You know, lots more work to be done on this front, and hopefully it gets done quickly before we do hit, if we do hit, a second wave of this. Thanks so much for joining us, Tracy. Thank you, Sue and Andrew. Appreciate it. That's Tracy Johnson. She is with the Canadian Institute for Health Information as Director of Health Systems Analysis. 749 now, and that hailstorm that happened earlier this month caused $1.2 billion in damage. So how are individual insurance rates impacted after something like this? With details, we're joined by Rob Dupuy, Director of Consumer and Industry Relations for Western Region of Insurance Bureau of Canada. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us. So, you know, I think people wonder, I I didn't live in that community that got hit so hard, but will it affect my insurance rates in the end? And that's a great question. The insurance industry is well capitalized for these events. This is what we plan for, and this is what we're here for. So typically, no one event will lead to an automatic increase in premiums. So let's talk about if I've been impacted and, you know, had to make a claim, whether it was my roof or or my vehicle. Uh, How is that determined that my insurance rates, if I've made a claim uh, directly affected by the hail, uh, will increase? Well, usually they don't have a a huge impact the way people would normally think. When we think about Alberta over the past decade, this province has seen about two dozen of these storms that have cost insurers about $4 billion. And this event, it was very, very large. This is the costliest hail event in Canada's history and the fourth costliest severe weather event that's on record. But having said that, just because the industry is well capitalized, there's no one event that automatically leads to an increase in premiums. What about individually? If I'm making a claim, does it change things or do I have to have had two, three claims over the years? Usually there'd have to be some type of a history or a pattern or something along those lines just to have a direct impact to you. If people are changing their coverage or increasing different coverages, that will absolutely have an impact in the future. I'm wondering, it happened just over a month ago, a month ago yesterday on June 13th, and we've heard tens of thousands of homes, for example, uh, you know, were damaged. Uh, how is that work going as far as, um, you know, all assessments? Have all assessments been completed or is that still a process that insurance companies are working through? That is still a process. There was about 70,000 insurance claims that have been presented already. So this is a huge number and it will take some time to do all the assessments and to get the repairs underway. Rob, if I live sort of on the outskirts of the area that was hit super hard, but I'm just not sure if there might have been damage to my roof, for example, do I call my insurance company and have them look at it anyway? You can, yeah. 
because the homeowners, they're typically not the experts to be assessing the damage. We need to get someone out there to take a real close look just to make sure that any damage that you do have, it is noted and it is repaired just to make sure that you're not having any problems in the future. Rob, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me. That is Rob Dupree, Director of Consumer and Industry Relations for Western Region of Insurance Bureau of Canada. It is 8.49 on the morning news with Albertans staying home and looking to explore our home province. A new luxury boutique passenger bus service is launching to get us where we want to go. Joining us with all the details is Abu Ramil, President and CEO of Snow Travels Incorporated. Good morning to you, Abu. Good morning. Tell us about your bus line and uh, what you'll be offering uh, to Albertans. Absolutely. So we are doing this uh, uh, bus service launch on July the 23rd with initial four routes. Uh, we will be covering Calgary to Edmonton uh, with a stop in Caradir, Calgary to Canmore, and we will expand up to Banff very soon. And then other route is Calgary to Drumheller nonstop, and we are also going Calgary to Lethbridge with a stop in Aqueducts, High River, Nanton, and Home. That's fantastic. And Yes, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so, Abu, how many passengers on board? What makes these buses, you know, luxury? Absolutely, yeah. So, on the luxury side, we are providing recliner seats. Uh, they will get Wi-Fi on the buses, so when they are traveling, they can, uh, you know, use the Internet and uh, do different things on the use, leveraging the Internet. We're also giving free water bottles. They will get reading lights, so if they want to read a book while traveling, you know, the, those reading lights will be available. They have overhead storage on the top of the bus where they can put extra luggage if they have. And the most importantly is they can, you know, select the seats in advance without paying any extra cost for that. So they know where they are sitting uh, while they book the ticket, right? So it's very important and very affordable. Abu, how does the cost compare to, to some of your competitors? Because you deem this a luxury service. Uh, what, how does the ticket price compare? Uh, that's a very good question. So one of the very strong like foundation that we have is the affordability. It's important to us. So we believe that our passenger service, uh, you know, are providing a very budget-friendly and comfort services at a very affordable prices. We are, as compared to our competitors, uh, you know, are going up to 50% less. Uh, if you talk about going from Calgary to Edmonton or any other city that I talked about. Mm -hmm. So we are almost 50% uh, as compared to uh, all other competitors that uh, we have in the market. And that's what uh, is very important to make sure Albertans get all the luxury on the same time at a very affordable price. And Abu, sorry, how many passengers did you say? I know these buses are a little smaller. So how many passengers on board at a time? So we have 24 passenger buses, but since we have COVID-19, we are taking very extra precautions to make sure our passengers are safe. Their safety is paramount to us. So uh, we will be running with a 50%, uh, up to 50% vacancy. So we will be only filling up to 12 passengers. Uh, once this uh, COVID-19 uh, settle down, then they will go back to up to 24. Good stuff. Thank you very much for uh, telling us your story and uh, best of luck to you with the new business, Abu. Thank you. Thanks for, uh, you know, taking me here. <laughs> Appreciate that. That was Abu Ramil, president and CEO of Snow Travels Incorporated. And it looks like it's snowtravels.ca if you want to check out online prices and uh, where you can actually take the bus.
It was 20 years ago today that the central Alberta community of Pine Lake was hit by a devastating tornado, claiming the lives of 12 people at the Green Acres campsite. Who was the first reporter on the scene that deadly night? Our very own Andrew Schultz. I did not know that you were the first guy to arrive there. Well, you don't you don't advertise something like that. It was just such a horrible situation, and uh, hard to believe. Uh, Twenty years have since passed. Was it mayhem when you arrived? Did it was it a disaster zone? What Absolutely. did it look it was, like? It looked like a war zone, really. And it's interesting because I found myself there. It wasn't a case that you know the news director or assignment editor said, "Andrew, go cover this." I've never been a reporter. I've been a meteorologist, and I've been a program host on television, and now on radio. And I and I love telling stories, hearing stories. And it was a case that we, we finished the newscast, and I was the weather uh, presenter at that point, and it was not, not so bad, and Red Deer had some high cloud. It was very warm for a few days. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as we were finishing the weather cast off, then came a severe thunderstorm watch, not a warning. And we talk a lot about it on this program and with Jordan, how a watch and a warning, warning means, you know, fine. Co- yeah. yeah. Uh, the warning wasn't issued until we finished the newscast, and at which point it was 6 to 6.30 newscast. Me and one of my cameraman friends went to go get lunch before the 11 o'clock show, our lunch, dinner. And on the way, uh, on the police radio, the scanner that we listened to, started to hear about stars being called from Calgary uh, to uh, Ghost Pine Lake. And it was uh, they were going to Pine Lake. And then Edmonton, can we bring Edmonton stars to Pine Lake? So my cameraman at the time, Keith, he said, we got to go check this out. Yeah. So on the way there, we thought maybe maybe somebody was drowning. Maybe there was a boat accident because there was no mention of exactly what had happened. And, of course, at that point, there was no tornado warning. So we uh, drove down there, and the weather was super calm because it happened in minutes. Mm. Rolled into the campsite. You could see that vehicles were flipped upside down, uh, you know, trailers on their side, trees sheared off, signs flipped upside down, and uh, people walking around. We were following in ambulances. Ambulances were following us in. And it was just an, an, a surreal situation. Did it kind of take you a minute then to figure out what, like what what just happened, or did yeah. you know right away? Oh, it must have been a tornado. When you saw the damage uh, that was done, you knew it was a tornado. But up until I would say a hundred meters before you hit the campsite, Green Acres did not know. And uh, the one thing I've learned from this is is uh, immediately following a tornado, it's the most serene uh, weather you'll ever see in your life. Because the eye of the storm has gone. It's, it's, it's gone. Just... It's emptied out. Uh, there's no more atmosphere per se. There was no wind. It was beautiful. Huh. Uh, but it was, uh, again, it was like being in a movie. Could it you hear a... people screaming? Yes. Like, was it, Calling was for help, wow. helping family members, searching for family members, walking them out, supporting them. And the ambulances could not come quick enough. And what was really crazy about it is because, again, we stumbled upon this. My cameraman heard, we, we have to check this out. Having to alert the rest of the TV station who were on lunch break that this had happened. And the shock, thinking that we were pranking them. Saying, you know, you better get back to the TV station immediately. Yeah. It was the global Stop affiliate in Red Deer. Yeah, RDTV. Oh, come on, Andrew. And my, my get back. And so for 10 days in a row after that, I swear it was 10 days, we did updates. And we stayed on the air till 3 in the morning that night uh, trying to help people and get their heads around what had happened. What, what's the thing that you remember most? What struck you the most? Just the incredible. Time? I've never seen cars and trees, trees on the ground. Cars upside down. Wow. It looked like a war zone. 20 years ago today, that tornado hit Pine Lake and the Green Acres campsite.